0: We promised we would do this episode uh, mainly for my own enjoyment. But this is Eyes Wide Shut, our examination of the late Stanley Kubrick's final film. Sam, what is your relationship with Eyes Wide Shut?
1: Uh, I play everyone in the orgy sequence.
0: That actually makes sense. They are very, uh, you know, y- you have an equally uh, chiseled frame.
1: Yeah, I have dope titties. But um, no, I, I've seen this movie uh, definitely a few times. I, like many other uh, young white males, have seen this movie and plenty of the other Stanley Kubrick ove multiple times. Kubrick's definitely one of my favorite directors, even though it's obviously cliched. I think it's cliched for a reason. And uh, I'm excited to talk about all the weird stuff that happens in this film.
0: I think part of the appeal of Kubrick is that all of his films, and especially Eyes Wide Shut, demands like that multiple viewings, like you really notice so many small details the more you revisit uh, his work. And I think you can see in how Eyes Wide Shut was perceived when it was released versus now, uh, 20 years later. I think for a lot of people, this movie. Had to uh, It had to defrost a little.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's not uncommon for Kubrick's movies to not be appreciated when they first come out. It's common that they, you know, when, when you're a challenging artist, then you're not going to get all the ex- accolades right up front. You know, people need to evaluate the work because it's different than what they expected to have to wrestle with. And I think this is a classic example of that.
0: So Stanley Kubrick, I guess before we get into Eyes Wide Shut, we can give uh, just some quick uh, info on him. Obviously, he's one of the most prolific uh, American directors, but he did spend most of his uh, career sort of rejecting Hollywood and making all of his shit from the UK.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And he's, I think, mostly known for his extremely meticulous style. And Eyes Wide Shut is an extremely good example of that, requiring just an ungodly amount of takes for every scene. And I guess his perfectionist streak definitely shines through in this film and in the stories that you hear about his production. I'm going to make a really hacky joke right now. My favorite Kubrick film is The Moon Landing.
0: (sighs) I I had to to get it out of my system. I had to get it out of my system. (laughs) Okay. That did come up in my research uh, on this episode. So apparently there just genuinely is not really much to that. Uh, It's the same kind of logic that flat earth people use that, well, we couldn't see Neil Armstrong step on the moon. We only saw it on television. And who was a master of filming things? Stanley Kubrick.
1: Yeah, and I mean, if you watch Space Odyssey, which came out one year before uh, the moon landing footage came out, quote unquote, it, if you're gonna compare the two, the moon looks like complete shit in that 1969 footage. looks totally fake. Whereas Stanley Kubrick's presentation of the moon and like the opening sequence of 2001: A Space Odyssey is absolutely like rivals i guess something you would see even in, like today i don't think it's like unreasonable to say that for the time it was an unbelievable feat of tech of you know technology but either way the, like i guess what we're getting at is that this Kubrick's movies because they're so detailed because they're so very specific and all the imagery that they use they are fertile ground for conspiracy theorists which is why it's a good thing for us to tie into our Epstein discussion from last week because as i said you know Epstein this whole mishigas with his quote unquote suicide or whatever it will turn you into a conspiracy theorist if you're not already headed there anyway and i think Kubrick movies have a similar effect on people there people have unpacked the conspiracy theory messages that are supposedly in the shining that are supposedly in eyes wide shut
0: there's a whole documentary about uh you know the room 237
1: yeah i've seen it (laughs) yeah i've seen it too it's not that good it, I definitely could feel my brain cooking, like, and becoming well done as <laughs> just solidified and gray and brown and smooth in my bread, like, as I watched it.
0: Yeah, and I even read about uh, how Kubrick's assistant, Leon Vitale himself, who, like, was the man who shepherded Eyes Wide Shut through, like, post-Stanley Kubrick's death, you know, it was shown two executives at Warner Brothers and Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman like uh, just about a week before Kubrick died so Leon Vitale had to you know he was like Kubrick's main guy and he claimed that everything in room 237 is complete horse shit so shocking with the Kubrick conspiracies I have a feeling that there is a lot of sort of mythologizing Kubrick as a sort of all-knowing artist and while he definitely is that sort of singular visionary director certainly one-of-a-kind voice I don't believe that he held the key to like unlocking the secrets of the universe I I just think he was a brilliant filmmaker you know
1: yeah and if you feel that way if you see these keys to the universe in his work it's just sort of indicative of how brilliant of a director he is but either way, I guess let's give some background on Eyes Wide Shut. This is a legendary movie shoot. It was over 15 months, which included an unbroken shoot period of like 46 weeks or something. The I think it's the longest in history.
0: Yes. And basically, that included the unbroken chain of 46 weeks plus additional reshoots uh, a couple months later. So this was like an eternal shoot. And the descriptions of it in this book that I'm going to reference frequently in this episode, uh, this book uh, called *Eyes Wide Shut*: Stanley Kubrick and the Making of His Final Film by Robert P. Culker and Nathan Abrams. This book is really good if you're into this movie, uh, in terms of detailing the production and having a lot of like cool notes, you know, directly from Kubrick's notes. The shoot itself was relaxed in terms of they had endless time. To do anything they wanted because outside of Hollywood, I guess Kubrick was able to film for much cheaper and therefore get a lot more out of his, you know, actors and the sets and stuff because didn't have quite the same like uh, rushed constraints as Hollywood.
1: And to that extent, of course, this movie famously features Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman as the leads. Tom Cruise is in almost every scene of the film, and it's sort of at the height of his career. He's making like $20 million per movie, and uh, he winds up taking a pay cut for this movie and working 12- to 16-hour days. Of course, famously, Kubrick forces you to do a gajillion takes for everything. And people, I, I feel like the accounts of the shoot say that Tom Cruise has actually had a really good, I I don't know, a really good demeanor throughout all of it, despite the extreme circumstances.
0: That's right. So Tom Cruise definitely was like fully game and like totally submitted himself to everything Kubrick wanted. And there is this great quote from Leon Vitali in the book that I mentioned before. This is about, you know, what happened when Stanley Kubrick forced the actors to do 70, 80, 90 takes And what happens is you drop all pretense about acting and you're getting there in a really normal and natural way. People don't always stand there and think through every word before they say it in life. The acting process starts to go away and erode and you start to become until Stanley thought you were ready to shoot. He could go as far as filming 70 or more takes of a scene or even a small bit of business in order to get the performance or gesture he needed. Stanley didn't do do take after take because he enjoyed it or wanted to drive everyone crazy. The scene was either right or it wasn't right, and whatever kept it from being right had to be eliminated.
1: Right. So, and then it gives you an idea of how much of a perfectionist he is, and then you add that to the fact that he was the one who primarily did i you know i guess a lot of the editing and he had a heavy hand in that and so of these many many takes that he made them do he would pick the one he liked and it might not be the one that tom cruise thought was the best one and i think that a lot of people think that tom cruise's performance in this movie is not as good as his other movies in at that time period but from a technical perspective at least but it's the what it's what kubrick
0: wanted to show which is very interesting Absolutely. And again, that casting of Tom Cruise, the, you know, Hollywood A-list sort of, I don't know if it's right to call him a sex symbol, probably is, but it's like there were rumors swirling around him and, you know, that still do that he's gay. I don't think you can watch this film without taking that. Clearly Kubrick is playing off of that. And we know that because of the amount of time Kubrick spent basically like with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, just like grilling them with like psychoanalytic questions about their feelings <laughs> about like marriage and commitment. So he was like, he was mining their own relationship for material here.
1: Who do you think is more intrusive into Tom Cruise's life? Stanley Kubrick or David Miscavige?
0: Of course, David Miscavige is the Scientology man. And a uh, good question. Uh, you know, Kubrick's been dead since, like, you know, 99 or whatever it was. So, uh, perhaps uh, Miskovich in Scientology. Oh, and and interestingly, uh, Kubrick was dying to cast uh, some other people. Like, early on, he even looked at, like, Steve Martin and Woody Allen when he saw the film as more of, like, a straight-up, like, sex comedy.
1: God, Woody Allen would (laughs) would have been a nightmarish choice in retrospect.
0: Yeah, then uh, we might have to cancel this one. But we also would uh, potentially have seen Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger or Bruce Willis and Demi Moore.
1: I feel like either of those v- versions,
0: I don't think they would have
1: worked as well. Like Bruce Willis playing Dr. Bill doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, We'll get more into
0: it in the synopsis later on. Another just quick background thing, and this will come up again and again, is these bizarre New York City's sets and while Kubrick did send a second unit to film a couple of things uh, in New York City for exterior shots like the entire setting of the film is completely you know sets constructed in England <laughs> and, because Kubrick was famously afraid to fly and uh, this just reminded me of you know the Seinfeld strategy where you know it's Seinfeld was all filmed in L.A. We see eyes wide shut, and like everything's just slightly off, and it just it it contributes to this sort of imaginary, you know, dreamlike tone that, you know, encompasses just every frame of the film.
1: So, yeah, I mean, speaking of the dreamlike nature of this movie, it is Kubrick's adaptation of an erotic novel called Traum Novelle. He had apparently, like, uh, sat on the rights to this film since the 70s and had always wanted to adapt it. And it also contains, like, some of the themes in the movie that appear, such as dreams versus reality or kind of surrealism, male libido, masculine identity, dysfunctional families, fantasy, and, of course, sex. And it's interesting also that Kubrick had a long time fascination
0: with erotica and pornographic art. Yes. Which apparently he was a big collector of just all sorts of erotica. <laughs> oh, and
1: it's from a very artsy place. It's not for <laughs> self gratification.
0: <laughs> of course not. He was happily married three times. Um <laughs> I have a quote here from Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, in the making of his final film, Robert P. Culker and Nathan uh, Abrams. Fantastic book once again. Uh, This is on the sort of quest narrative and how it's a little more subdued maybe than some other Kubrick stuff. Eyes Wide Shut, by comparison, is a calm, introspective film with few pyrotechnics and small incremental moves to some insight on the part of its male protagonist – It is as well the summa of Kubrick's concern with domesticity and its discontents. But in a different key, it is a quest narrative, the aim of which is to learn what secrets lie between a married couple that, when revealed, cause a wrenching tear in the marriage. It queries whether the tear can be healed, but Kubrick's idea of domesticity had both mellowed and become more complex. The frenzy and violence of his preceding films is replaced by a more measured pace, a reticence to overplay his hand. A retreat into a dreamlike logic that itself dictates a disconnected languor. Domesticity in Eyes Wide Shut becomes a starting place for dreams and all the tricks dreams play with the sleeper. All of the discontents of women and especially of men as they navigate intimacy. Unlike so many of Kubrick's earlier male characters, Bill is not destroyed. He's only somewhat diminished, chastened more accurately. One of the
1: the themes I noticed the most out of this, and definitely it's reflected in that quote, this kind of idea of you know what lies behind a veneer of domesticity. Almost makes this movie, and this may be a weird take that reveals the fact that I don't have like film critic critic backgrounds or anything like that. But this movie feels way more Lynchian than any other Kubrick movie. And you know, speaking of the director David Lynch and his kind of obsession with, I guess you know, suburban domesticity and the what lies behind it, I, I feel like I get a lot of that from this movie as well.
0: Uh, Lynch, I did read that he loved Eyes Wide Shut. But he thinks that Kubrick probably would have given it another cut, but you know that's Lynch here, and he's uh, you know he's another you know an auteur if you will. Right Uh, on masculinity, uh, another. Quick quote from the book is The trials of masculinity as it, as it exists within the domestic sphere are central to all of Kubrick's work. How men strive and fail, creating the means of their own destruction, falling under the burden of sexual angst or complex schemes that overwhelm them, is crucial to understanding every one of his films. Whether the catastrophes are external to the characters or internal, Part of their psyches as an eyes wide shut, the results are always the same some sort of collapse, defeat, occasionally a recognition, sometimes a profound change, though never an epiphany. And especially in eyes wide shut, we definitely don't get an epiphany. But that quote also definitely made me think of a clockwork orange.
1: Yeah, I could get, I can see where, where, where you would find that.
0: I guess the idea that we really are just watching Bill sort of make these sort of passive decisions. And I know maybe that's, like, sort of an oxymoron, but, like, he makes these sort of horny decisions, but he's afraid to actually, like, commit to anything. His thought process
1: the whole time seems to be something like, how could I say no to this when, like, you could just say no. But he also doesn't affirmatively say, yes, I want to go cheat on my wife and get into an orgy or, like, fuck the two ladies at the beginning. He just... He's just always sort of along for the ride and wants to see where it goes and he thinks it will end up somewhere but it, it just becomes clear through the whole thing that he has like no agency and he's just sort of like floating through this bizarre dream that which I guess you know that is very surreal you don't always have control over what you dream about most dreams are not lucid so it fits in but it's, it it is bizarre like the whole time I'm like
0: dude do you want to fuck or not and I guess before we get into the plot summary, a couple more things. Uh the film's box office performance was helped by the fact that it was extremely popular overseas, especially in Japan. Fun fact. Mm-hmm. They love Kubrick over there, but they loved Eyes Wide Shut.
1: Which is bizarre, because in Japan you literally have to like blur out the vagina and porn.
0: And uh the MPAA wanted to rate the film NC17. So the theatrical version had in the orgy sequence a few uh, cloaked figures were digitally added in. And that's one of the few changes that were made from the cut that Kubrick submitted to Warner Brothers to view with uh, the uh, Tom and Nicole right before he died. So... It's interesting how there was that sort of censorship of the film, even though I think we can agree and I will get to this. The film's representation of sex is kind of mild, kind of like juvenile almost, but we'll get to that. Um, Yeah. Just uh, because we'll probably forget to mention it later. Tom Cruise filed for divorce in the summer of 2001. So that was, you know, I guess uh, around two years after, Eyes Wide Shut came out, but the obviously the production uh, probably wasn't easy on their marriage.
1: No, I mean Stanley Kubrick apparently like antagonized their marriage and tried to get them to distrust one another actively, even to the point that when Nicole Kidman filmed scenes in which the, you know, it's a dream sequence in which the Naval officer, which we will get into is just really like, you know, really going to town on her. Like, (laughs) you know, I guess not, it's not like hardcore or anything, but they are having, you know, pretty clear sex and it's like Tom Cruise's or I guess Dr. Bill's nightmarish vision of like what her fantasy was. And, after filming that, I guess Kubrick did not allow Kidman to tell Tom Cruise what had happened during the shoot of those scenes. Tom Cruise was not allowed to be there. And so he basically just for six days was like, what is my wife doing with this man filming this sex scene? Which, I don't know, I feel like that probably happens in you know the acting world. But... It's not like an active choice by the director always, whereas in this case, Stanley Cooper was like, no, I want to build this kind of bizarre distrust between this husband and wife duo.
0: And how often is this sort of plot told with actors who are like an extremely famous Hollywood couple?
1: No, at this time they were like dominating the, you know, dominating the press and the gossip blog or not blogs, whatever, whatever the blog equivalent was at that time. Rags. Newspapers, yeah, rags.
0: Let's let's just dive into the plot summary here, uh, unless you have anything else. No, let's get into it. So we open on a shot of Nicole Kidman like dropping her dress, and like the first thing you see in the movie is like her whoa, whoa, naked whoa, whoa.
1: kid man
0: whoa. Epstein. Oh Did I just blow your mind? Ghislaine Maxwell <laughs> in an out burger. You know, I think the one thing we didn't mention that I, I regret not mentioning on our two-part Epstein episode was, I we didn't really get into the CIA stuff much, but you know, it's it's pretty clear that Epstein was uh, a, a, an intelligence asset.
1: Yeah. Well, we got a lot to bite off with this episode. <laughs> let's let's table that.
0: All right. So the first thing uh, after that is Doctor Bill. Tom Cruise and his wife, Alice, Nicole Kidman, go to a party thrown by uh, Ziegler, who is a rich patient of uh, Dr. Bill's. And uh, yes, this like very decadent party that, you know, they're thrust into and they make it clear they don't really know anybody.
1: Yeah, and even Nicole Kidman's character, you know, Alice at one point complains that the party is so extravagant. I think it's pretty obvious early on that Ziegler is from a different social class than than, uh, Bill and Alice, even though Bill and Alice are clearly like upper middle class, well-to-do people. Ziegler's like aristocratic, basically.
0: And this is especially uh, evident when you look at the contrast between their apartment and Ziegler's home. I mean you know the bathroom that uh bill enters shortly is like as you know bigger than their apartment probably
1: yeah absolutely and uh i also wanted to mention that this has like the best soundtrack besides i think maybe the shining of any i did a bad 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 thing
0: what the (laughs) fuck is that before that
1: the the intro music uh is that famous it's it's credited in the soundtrack as waltz 2 from jazz suite uh, by Shostakovich, but it's actually the suite for Variety Orchestra, and um, I, I think it's so funny. Like Kubrick has a thing with waltzes. There, also, famously, he uses uh, Anderschoen in in the, by uh, Strauss in Space Odyssey, like the famous I guess spaceship docking scene. And I, there's something like. I think that he finds, he draws inspiration from in these, like, you know, random classical bits that he puts in there. It's, I guess, the waltz sort of reminds me of like the dance of everyday life for this upper middle class or, you know, going through the
0: motions of married life. Definitely. Yet at that party, we see Bill and Alice both kind of splinter off and Bill kind of innocently flirts with two ladies. One of them is a former patient. Uh, And Alice gets. Pretty close to kissing this horny European. I believe he's Hungarian. Oh, yeah. Sandor Shav- Shavost. <laughs>
1: The guy who plays him is literally named Sky Dumont, and he is like a, a serious Mr. Steal Girl. Like, he is, he's like a handsome, I guess, charming man who is like openly propositioning Nicole Kidman. At one point, he even says that the, like, isn't the advantage of marriage
0: that deception is required for both
1: parties?
0: Yeah. <laughs> And then he based, I don't know if this, I think this is pretty much the exact quote. The only reason women used to marry was to lose their virginity so they could fuck any man.
1: (laughs) Yeah, very uh, interesting conception of gender roles there.
0: So uh, while Alice is dancing with this horny Hungarian, Bill gets dragged to help Ziegler in the bathroom deal with a woman that he was about to have sex with Named Mandy, who has overdosed on a speedball, a real Chris Farley situation.
1: Yeah, and of course we should mention that at the time that uh, Tom or that Dr. Bill is pulled away. he is like the, the two ladies are like, so you can like basically are about to try to fuck his brains out. and he, this is the first of the moments in which he is not sexually gratified in this film, which is I think a recurring event.
0: Absolutely, and he approaches that sort of, the cusp of, like, slightly scratching that itch of his, like, sexual desires, but it's just, like, constantly not happening.
1: Absolutely, but either way, I mean, we, clearly Ziegler was about to get his fuck on, but then Mandy has an overdose, and th- I remember from that scene, the painting in the background is just excruciating. It's like this pregnant woman, and... um. Either way, he, I guess he's able to resuscitate Mandy and he's really kind of judging her when he resuscitates her. He sort of was like, you know, you're not going to let this happen again, right? When, I mean, at, this becomes clear later on, but on the rewatch, I was like, we don't know at all what happened to this woman. <laughs> like, they obviously, Ziggler claims that she overdosed tom cruise as whatever some sort of doctor is able to discern this i'm also very con- confused as to what kind of doctor dr bill is supposed to be is he like a general practitioner he's do- he does house calls which well, comes up <laughs> all the time and i'm like this this doesn't really exist in the
0: 90s but he does house calls but he's able to to at a on a whim cancel his afternoon appointments and yeah. we don't see him actually like using his medical ability much in the movie to actually like treat people (laughs) like that's, that's not really shown.
1: So the one time we see it is actually after that scene where he resuscitates Mandy. There's like this kind of montage of him going through his day again, set to, uh, set to Shostakovich's waltz. But he is, there's one scene that I remember where he is like taking the heartbeat with a stethoscope of this, like, very attractive woman with her tits out well right
0: (laughs) it's that sort of you know sterile nudity and i think there was like an earlier draft of the movie where a bigger part of bill's conflict was feeling you know uh horny about his patients
1: yeah and of course this comes up later on in the fights that he has with his wife but either way uh Again, there's this kind of Lynchian divide between the public face and the private in respectable circles. And uh, either way, we let's get to it. The best fucking scene oh is the weirdest weed smoking scene in the history of cinema. <laughs> and I think this is the prelude to this is the, the sequence in which. Alice is nude. She's nude all the time in this movie. It's not like that distinctive. But either way, she's taking her earrings off. And the music playing in the background is the song called I Did a Bad, Bad
0: Thing. Or no, Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing <laughs> by bad. Chris Isaac. <laughs> all right. Yeah, and we get that in that scene, that classic shot from the poster where Bill and Alice are, you know, about to make love and Bill is, like, kissing her neck and Alice is just, like, staring off into the distance, like, despondent and kind of says it all. Baby, did a bad, bad thing. Baby, did a bad, bad thing. Yeah and
1: and I guess some background on that song. Nicole Kamen apparently used to listen to Chris Isaac while she was getting re- ready for her scenes and Hubert just liked it. And uh, it does have a kind of cinematic quality to the to the I guess the beat and the the way it's like kind of quiet it reminds it does seem like it could be used in a soundtrack and that means that after getting notoriety in this movie, it is in a ton of other like <laughs> movies and shows. Most recently I saw it in the in the Amazon adaptation of the comic The Boys. <laughs> (laughs) Scene, which of course it's like in it's it's like an orgy scene, and uh, they I guess bring the song up to harken back to it. But it's funny, like once you hear it in this movie, you start to hear it other places, and now it's just become an inside joke for me.
0: You know that music choice definitely reminded me of, and it came up a lot in the book. But uh, Kubrick was a huge fan of Pulp Fiction, and it reminded me of some of the music Mm -hmm. choices in Pulp Fiction.
1: Yeah, it's totally like this rockabilly style song. Even though I, I think the song is from like the '90s, it's still like that kind of 1950s rockabilly style.
0: And we definitely see a sort of stale color palette in the scenes depicting depicting that domestic life. But once we start getting into the weed smoking, you know, like this is what the yuppies do. You know, you smoke a little weed before bed.
1: Yeah, very bohemian lifestyle they're living. This is, of course, this is also the '90s when I guess. I think a lot of ways the 90s were more liberal, but it's not like today where there's like weed stores and, you know, like half of the states in the
0: U.S. So not only does this scene have... I mean, it has like a great buildup, and I think that the pacing of the shots and stuff is just like perfect, and I think that in the editing, Kubrick clearly, like... He took... I mean, to think that there were like 70 or 90 versions of some of these shots and that he assembled this scene from that and created as much tension as he did. What do you think is so weird about the fact that this is what like high people are written like in Kubrick's world? <laughs> I mean all right, the classic the classic line, this pot is making you aggressive.
1: <laughs> yeah, what happens is that Nicole Kidman gets uh, in in uh in Dr. Bills words he says you got a little stoned and then she starts going off about him on him about i guess you know the double standard between male and female sexuality and um she's always like you why don't you ever worry about the fact that i might run around on you i might cheat on you doesn't that worry you and he's like no i would never i would never expect you to cheat on me because dr bill like we should get into this a little bit like dr bill is honestly one of the most gullible and impressionable lead characters that I can think of. He is he's a perfect avatar for clueless upper middle class people he really thinks and obviously this comes up later in the in the synopsis but he really thinks that the fact that he has a good salary and a stable you know home means that he is like rich
0: and that he's like graduated medical school that he is that he is like permitted to make house calls to the super rich but like still he's not one of them
1: no, he is at best like a middle manager in the corporate hierarchy of rich people. His, you know, as we see with Ziegler Ziggler's like the CEO, you know, they're like the people who are really in charge. And he is just such like an annoying, like I said, like a middle manager. And it makes him just so clueless and impressionable. And I think also that might be why Kubrick, broke him down broke tom cruise down in his acting and picked all these cuts where he he does seem like kind of all i think it's not just tom cruise it's all the actors seem like they're doing this vaguely affected acting style it's i guess partially dream like it also sort of sounds like they're all on drugs which you know upper middle class people are and have been like that you know prescription pill addictions and casual weed habits abound with these kinds of people but at the same time it's just it's it's very bizarre
0: and unnerving so this kind of sets the whole film off and what starts as a sort of debate about how like men and women you know view sex and intimacy a little differently like bill is saying that he was wasn't going to have sex with those two women who are flirting with him and then he suggests that the only reason the horny hungarian was talking to alice was because he was horny and she fires back at him saying that and i'll i'll i'll, I'll take this uh, i'll take this into a quote here from The book, once again. Alice tells her husband of her attraction to a handsome sailor while they were on vacation. Naval officer, please. (laughs) Yes, sorry, Admiral. Uh, Her uh, admission sets Bill off on his nocturnal wanderings. And we see this over and over again where... He imagines the sailor at first in full uniform, making love with increasing vigorousness and nudity to his naked wife. There are naked bodies vigorously fornicating later during the orgy. Eyes Wide Shut does not so much stress sexuality as it inquires into the stresses of intimacy in marriage and the imaginings of a husband who feels his very masculinity is called into question by revelations that his wife has her own sexual longings. The film summarizes Kubrick's sexual obsessions quietly but devastatingly as Bill's damaged sense of masculinity propels him on one sexual misadventure after another. But yeah,
1: the fight they have is so contentious and jarring. It's like a perfect, I guess representation of, I don't know, upper middle class respectable life, but also the, you know, the outright conflict r- behind that thin veneer. And she, I mean, she goes on her rant, I guess accusing him of wanting to like feel ladies' tits while he's a doctor. And she says something like, I think we both know what men are like and Tom Cruise literally says like there are exceptions, (laughs) meaning himself (laughs) again being like so fucking gullible and impressionable and weirdly like innocent and childlike almost. And when he says that, she like literally is like l- laughs and the shaking camera during that laughing scene is so chaotic. Just everything about it. And also the like you said, the restrained color palette that still is somehow evocative of the heavy red focus of the shining. This kind of, I don't know, sinister underlying violence in every scene is definitely a very it's a common touchstone,
0: but it is really such a well executed scene. So what follows is sort of the odyssey of this movie. Bill gets a call that a patient died, and so begins the voyeuristic journey. On the cab ride over, like I said, he imagines Alice fucking the uh, Navy admiral. And, uh, well, also
1: with the naval officer, one of the things she said was... And, like, she specifically says, I was willing to risk our marriage and our daughter and our whole life for one night with the naval officer. Like, she was so... Because... His point is that like women or or the argument they have is about whether or not women are, you know, get anything from sex or if they're as driven by sex as men are, which is a classical art. I mean, classically, Zeus and Hera argue this over this and like Ovid or in some some classical work or other that I'm not going to mention. But, yeah, she literally describes being willing to risk it all just for one night with a naval officer. And it's almost like the realization that. Women have sexuality is what sets him off and what makes him just takes him so far out of his comfort zone. And of course, I mean, we have established that he is gullible and impressionable and childlike, but it is he is so fucking fragile, I think is the way to put it.
0: Well, I think he has convinced himself that he is pleasing her sexually and fulfilling his wife, which clearly she is expressing that that is not the case. And, you know, he can't like fake it once she's actually said it. Right. <laughs> so, Bill arrives at the dead patient's home. The dead patient's daughter, who barely knows Bill, professes her love for him and uh tries to kiss him. <laughs> I mean, this is just another example of Bill kind of on the edge of his desires. You know, if he's so horny, why doesn't he just fucking do it already? And I definitely have a sense here that, I think he's making this house call to a patient who clearly is perhaps on this Ziegler level of upper classness so he doesn't want to transgress in that man's home. Uh, do you think maybe uh, that that could be a thing?
1: I guess so, but I think it's more like I get the sense that like when Dr. Bill or people like Dr. Bill are with their boys, like these kind of mild-mannered upper middle class professional types always did the right thing. Love to show their medical license at every occasion possible. I think, when they're yucking it up or when they're thinking in their heads, when they're, they're letting their id run wild, they're like, I would do all these depraved things. Like I would, I would totally just like ravish this woman or something. Like, I'm just so, so ready to cheat. And whenever the opportunity is presented to him again, he's very like childlike. He just doesn't seem to know what to do with it almost every time. And it's not just so with the scene with Marion is also profoundly disturbing. Like she really throws himself at him.
0: I mean, yeah, like, in, up with their right, in front of the her father's corpse. I mean, like they're 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 aren't they like bending over it? <laughs> like basically, yeah. no, and
1: also again very Lynchian with like how I don't know, uncomfortable yet awkward and
0: almost funny. This scene is yeah, and that's actually something that'll come up maybe later with some of the scenes especially in the costume shop like there is a lot of this movie that i think kubrick was definitely playing for laughs
1: absolutely and we know that kubrick has a bizarre sense of humor obviously but uh either way we should get to his next attempt at a sexual encounter
0: well okay so bill exits that apartment he's walking down the street and a bunch of like ruffian teens start yelling a bunch of uh, you know gay slurs and saying he wants to fuck their asses and you know really just totally emasculating bill in public he feels like shit when suddenly he is approached by a sex worker named Domino on the street and again oh my god bill make a fucking decision for yourself he's like she well she asks him what do you want to do? And then he literally says, what do you recommend? Oh. It's like,
1: Oh, he's just on, he's just there for the ride. And basically every situation that he gets himself into in these, in, in these events. And uh, Dan, I'm realizing we left a very major thing out from the Ziegler party. It's where he meets Nick Nightingale.
0: <laughs> oh shit. All right. So earlier at the party, Uh, In the opening scene, Bill meets an old pal who has uh, traveled to New York City for a couple weeks to play a jazz residency. This is a friend from medical school who dropped out of medical school, and Nick Nightingale, who, I forgot the actor's name, but he's uh, portrayed by another director, and it's interesting because uh, director Sidney Pollock portrays Ziegler, so there's a lot of like directors as uh, actors in this movie, but... Uh, Nick Nightingale catches up with Bill and tells him at Ziegler's party hey why don't you come visit me where I'm playing piano
1: I would say Nightingale is also a Dr. Bill case and like what kind of musician are you he apparently has to travel he, he literally point at one point says that he lives in Seattle but he goes where the work is <laughs> like later we catch up with him he's just like in a CD club I, I don't know a lot of it doesn't necessarily need to make sense it's Clearly not at the forefront of what Kubrick was intending, but either way, okay. So back to Domino. Like the the entire encounter is excruciating. I, I would say that Tom Cruise as Dr. Bill is still kind of doing this bizarre, affected, drugged out, dreamlike performance, and I would say Domino almost seems like the actress who's playing her seems like she's more natural and doesn't talk as weirdly it's sort of she is one of the first like working class people that we see on camera who gets like significant dialogue and it's almost like she's not and she's she is someone who's like out not in this upper class or not trying to be a social climber the way to, uh, dr bill is it seems like she almost is like more normal and less affected i, I don't know if you got that vibe but either way uh Dr. Bill obviously does not want to fuck. He still pays her for her time because he's he's honestly cucked by himself in his own brain by the image of his wife wanting to fuck the naval officer.
0: And he is given an out with this scene with Domino because Alice calls him, so she kind of breaks up the you know, dirty talk. Yeah, he's like happy to have an excuse not to do it. From there, he goes to see Nick Nightingale, his old pal. He's playing with his jazz band at a seedy Greenwich Village club. And I'm just going to take this opportunity to, you know, I I think that all those fucking annoying piece of shit, like, normie Die Hard fans who are like, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. No, Mm -hmm. Eyes Wide Shut is a Christmas movie. Clapping emojis between all of those. This is a Christmas movie, Sam. It is evident in most of the scenes, you know, in the domestic spaces and in the New York City exterior street shots. And I mean, marriage is the gift that keeps on giving (laughs) either way. He
1: goes to see Nick Nightingale at the club and he sits through his his jazz performance. And then afterwards they chat and. Nick kind of like let slip that he's going to be performing at a weird event later on in the evening.
0: That's right. So there is <laughs> who uh, he uh, comments that uh, he, Bill never such women like these like I've been around but I've there he, he looked quote never such women and then Bill says to him there is no way on earth you're leaving here without taking me with you. And I thought this was such a great scene because I think we get a sense of Nick Nightingale is kind of holding over his his friend Bill. Sort of the fact that I'm invited to an exclusive party that you're not, but in the same way as how Bill as a doctor is invited to, you know, uh, uh, check the prostates of old uh, rich men. He, you know, Nick Nightingale's invited to these, uh, you know, to parties like Ziegler's party and parties like the one we are about to enter, you know, where he's, he's blindfolded. He's not even like allowed to take part in it uh, in any of his senses. Yeah, Nightingale
1: is blindfolded when he plays piano at the at the you know the event he's going to and also i mean as you'll will play some the music is really weird that he has to play it's like i think about it a lot because i do love the soundtrack but it's bizarre and imagine having to show up and play that i don't even know one of the details that Nightingale lets slip is that he needs to if Bill wants to go to the party he's going to need to get a costume with a mask like a a, you know Dan you didn't live in New Orleans but I did I'm very common familiar with the idea of the masquerade ball you got to have a costume show up to these and uh, it's clear that I would say Dr. Bill thinks it's just kind of like a garden variety masquerade ball, even though Nightingale's like, oh yeah, this is like going to be, it's such a wild party or whatever. Like how many times have you had one of your friends tell you that he can get you into some kind of exclusive party or that there's some kind of, you know, that they have access to something like that or that something's going to be so wild and off the chain. It's, it's almost relatable, but it's almost so almost like Dr. Bill is trying to relive his younger years. I, like, I don't understand what about his character other than the fact that his wife told him that she wanted to have sex with a naval officer makes him think that he would want to go. He's the kind of guy who's going to be able to go to this kind of wild party. Regardless of the class element, I'm like, what in your personality
0: would make you want to attend something like this? Well, I think that A, as a way to cope with his sort of intrusive thoughts about getting cucked by the sailor, but also... This is, again, a way where he can use Nick to, uh, you know, kind of get closer to scratching an itch that he can't even really specify what it is himself, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, what, is, what does the good doctor do with the knowledge that he needs to go get a costume? He goes to exploit a working-class person. He, I think he shows up to the Rainbow Costume Rental because he, the prior tenant or the prior owner was one of his patients. And he thinks that like because of this, he'll be able to get a costume at 1 in the fucking morning from whoever lives there now. And luckily for him, the guy who owns it currently, Milich, who is honestly one of the most lynchian things I've ever seen in any movie and definitely in this movie answers the door and is sort of willing to help him out. But like, what do we
0: witness in this costume scene? I mean, it it goes from sort of the bizarre transaction of like, yeah, Tom Cruise is here in the middle of the night asking for like, what is essentially like an occult mask and a hooded cloak for several hundred dollars. And this is also an instance
1: where he does his like upper middle class idiot thing of like just flashing around a couple hundreds. He's like, "I'll give you a hundred for the costume." Well, I'm a doctor. Yeah, I got plenty of money, bro. Like, look at me. I can blow cash, and it's just so fucking clueless upper middle class shit. It's such like I don't know work like professional managerial type people who really think that they've been given the golden ticket because they have
0: slightly more money than the other working class people. So Mr. Milich finds his very young looking daughter, nearly nude with two cross-dressed Asian men in like full makeup. Uh, he threatens to call the police saying, can't you see she's a child and locks them in the back room. while he <laughs> continues to service bill. Um, so you will, we'll, we'll unpack that when we return to the store later. Um, Bill takes a yellow taxi way out to the suburbs, and this is supposed to be Long Island. I looked it up. Um, He is going to the address provided to him by Nick. He knows the password, and he is still thinking about the Navy sailor plowing his wife. So, you know, there is... Do you think this is, like, a revenge thing for him? Like, his motivations are vague
1: I don't know I, it's sort of like a revenge but it's also sort of like he seems like he's having a midlife crisis as well which I don't know maybe that is the most pedestrian interpretation of what he's going through but it's sort of the same even if it's not exactly a midlife crisis it's like the same energy he just he doesn't seem to it's not like if you had sat him down and asked him what are you gonna do tonight he would be like oh I'm gonna go to have a sex orgy party but when it's Like, put up to him, and he's already broken his brain by thinking so much about the naval officer plowing his wife, which, I guess, heretofore, he's never considered the fact that his wife would ever think about another man sexually, that it puts him in this, like, bizarre, sort of, almost drunken state where he's, I don't know, his inhibitions seem down, but he also... He goes through these great lengths to pursue the party, but at the same time, is he's half-assing it. He gets a shitty costume
0: at last minute. Oh, a fucking yellow taxi? I mean, you know, you're going to an elite party. You're going to show up in a yellow taxi? Right, because he has no other choice. Because like He, he just thinks, and of course...
1: I I don't know. In the '90s, like at that time, taking a taxi cab was considered kind of like a luxury. So, like he thinks for his class that that is, you know, how else would you get out there? But he doesn't realize that for the people he's, you know, going to be partying with, they show up in limos. And of course, this is. Visited later, but either way. So he, he, get, he gets out of the cab. He Oh, my God. No way. He I have to explain how he rips the fucking dollar in half oh. and gives half of the dollar to the cab driver. And he's like, you'll get the other half when I get back from the sex party. It's
0: like a hundred dollar bill. Yeah, absolutely. So that is one moment where we definitely are seeing like Kubrick definitely injected a little like class politics into this movie. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely an undercurrent um i'm gonna read another quote from eyes wide shut stanley kubrick in the making of his final film uh this is a quote from uh tim crider from an article called introducing sociology which is named after a textbook that you can see in domino's room which implies that she is some sort of uh college student but The real pornography in this film is its lingering depiction of the shameless, naked wealth of millennial Manhattan and of the obscene effect of that wealth on our society and on the soul. National reviewers' myopic focus on the sex and the shallow psychologies of the film's central couple – the Hartfords, at the expense of any other elements of the film, its trappings of stupendous wealth, its references to fin de siècle Europe and other imperial periods, its Christmas time setting, the sum Dr. Harford spends on a single night out, let alone the unresolved mystery at its center, says more about the blindness of our elites to their own surroundings than it does about Kubrick's inadequacies as a pornographer. For those with eyes wide open, there are plenty of money shots.
1: I loved that. No, absolutely. He just he just thinks that he can throw a couple hundreds around and get whatever he wants. He doesn't realize that there is a class of people above him who get whatever they want and they're thrown around like a lot more than a hundred. But he he just thinks the world is about the size of a cigar box and he's not ready ready yet to have his you know worldview
0: cracked open the way he's gonna have it cracked open in the film thanks for listening to part one of our eyes wide shut episode part two will be out soon